Brian, for reading that for us. Um, and uh, good morning. Lovely to be here with you. We have a particular fondness for this church, so I was, um, I was pleased and even a little flattered when Luke asked me to preach on this passage. And it's, a, it's kind of a prime passage <clears throat> to preach on, isn't it, really? Chapter 13 of, of 1 Corinthians. Um, you have to bear with me because the way I'm going to approach this will be a little technical to start with. I'm going to put on my Bible college lecture hat. Um, and we'll come at it maybe from an angle that you wouldn't expect. But this is an exceptional work of literature as well as a, as a deeply insightful and inspiring passage of Scripture. And we'll get to that part. We will certainly get to that part. It would be wrong not to. Um, but bear with me if I start with some of the, maybe the technical elements first, okay? Because uh, if you look at this passage, and I'm going to have to go back a little bit, maybe not quite to the very beginning, chapter 1, chapter 2. We don't need to go back quite that far. But um, chapter 12, let's go back to chapter 12. And at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul, in writing this address, he uses an expression. And in your version, it probably says something like, now concerning spiritual gifts, or now to address spiritual gifts. The expression, the, the term that he uses there, per, peride, is, it's, um, it's a rhetorical expression. It's, and he uses it a few times in Corinthians. And what Paul is doing, what he's signaling at that point is, he is, it's a little bit like saying, now in answer to your question about, he's responding to issues that the Corinthians have raised with him. Because this is, you know, an ongoing dialogue. And unfortunately, we're only getting half of the actual dialogue here. It's like listening, listening to somebody talking on the phone and only hearing half of the conversation. But Paul is responding to things that the Corinthians have, uh, have written to him. And that's an indication, right? The beginning of chapter 12. Um, now concerning, he starts off. And you get another similar phrase right at the beginning of chapter 15 where he says, now I would, now I would remind you, brothers. So what, what I'm pointing to there is the beginning of chapter 12 right through to the end of chapter 14 is really one unit, kind of one literary unit. Everything Paul is addressing in there all fits together. And what Paul is addressing in there, if you look, you've already had a look at chapter 12, 12, 13, and 14 together, is Paul is, it's a critique, quite a strong critique of the Corinthian Christians for the way that they're abusing, misusing spiritual gifts. And really, at a deeper level, how they're just doing church really badly. But particularly with regard to spiritual gifts. So, for example, in chapter 13, when Paul writes in, from, from verse 4, Love is patient, love, love is patient and kind. It's, it's even stronger. It's literally love makes patient. Love makes kind. Love does not envy or boast. Paul here is, he's not just talking about what love is. And again, we'll get to the, the positive side. We have to get there too. But Paul here is actually referring back to uh, chapter 11, where if you remember, if you, well, with regard to the uh, communion, to the Lord's Supper, Paul criticizes the Corinthians um, for coming to the Lord's Supper, eating, eating their fill, or well, some of the Corinthians, eating their fill and drinking until they get drunk, and then leaving the poor 
and the disadvantaged hungry, left out altogether. And he, he criticizes them for this. He says, you're, you know, you're, you're so focused on your own appetites that the very people who would benefit from this meal most are the very ones that you're leaving hungry. You're leaving to go hungry. You're leaving out. So in this passage here, there are other parts of 1 Corinthians where Paul is more specific in his criticism that, that, that attach to these lines in a sense. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Goes back into Paul's criticism of the Corinthians for the way they deal with the Lord's Supper. Is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist in its own way, on its own way. Goes back into chapters 2 and 3 where Paul criticizes the Corinthians for fighting with each other over which apostle is the right one to follow. And boasting, they use this term about themselves. They call themselves the, the pneumaticoi, the pneumaticos, the pneumaticoi, the spiritual ones, those who are, or the spirit ones, kind of literally, those who have this exalted spiritual understanding and maturity on the basis of which everyone else should look up to them and should follow them. And Paul criticizes them for their arrogance and their boasting in their spiritual maturity. And then continuing on, um, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Here, Paul in, in chapters five and six, he criticizes the Corinthians for allowing um, some pretty shocking behavior. He says, uh, you have actually, you have people in your congregation who have actually exalted a form of incest and other kinds of spiritual, uh, sexual immorality um, have flaunted the fact that they sleep with prostitutes. Now, the reason the Corinthians are doing this and bragging about it is because in their minds, they have rejected the resurrection and the story of the resurrection, but also the, the concept, the notion that the, the, the resurrection, the body will be resurrected. And they've got this weird teaching that because the body is going to pass away, it'll be taken away altogether, and we'll become these sort of pure spiritual beings. What we do with our body doesn't matter. And they're demonstrating their freedom in this incredible license. And Paul says, not only are you doing things that, that most people, including the pagans, would find shocking, you're bragging about it, you're boasting about it, you're saying this is an, an, uh, an, an uh, expression, a demonstration of the deep revelation of truth that you have. So, so each of these things um, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Each of these things kind of goes, points back into another part of Corinthians where Paul has taken the Corinthians to task and is criticizing them quite strongly for some really bad behavior on their part and some really misguided thinking. And then he goes on to say, love bears all things. Actually, this next passage is quite, it's quite powerful. It goes, it goes kind of like this. Um, love always bears, always believes, always hopes, always endures. And each of these again, love bears all things. You Corinthians are not bearing with each other well, you're fighting and you're using your spiritual gifts to actually compete with each other. And then worst of all, the, 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 those who don't have status in your church are left out altogether and ignored. 
So you're not bearing with one another. You and, and believe all things. They have rejected the belief in the resurrection. They reject the story of Christ being resurrected from the dead. They don't believe this is true. Hope all things. Endure all things. The Corinthians then, in their context, in the part of the Roman Empire where they, they're a fairly large metropolitan city, they, in the face of the pushback against their Christian faith, they accommodate themselves. They compromise with the local Corinthian community, pagan community, to try to get along. And one way of avoiding the persecution and the resistance or the pushback of the Corinthian community, again, is to make these these compromises. And some of Paul's warnings or criticism of the Corinthians about eating the meat sacrificed to idols and participating in these ceremonies and so forth is a reflection of their unwillingness to endure in the face of persecution or resistance, but to actually try to go along with it or to accommodate themselves to it, if you follow me. So in this part, Paul is speaking, he's using love as the positive example, but the background references are all actual negative things that the, that the Corinthians are doing. And he's speaking quite harshly, critically to them. And now, by indirect criticism, he's pointing to these things. The next, next passage is, is interesting. Paul takes, begins to take a little bit of a different tack here. So when he says in verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. He uses this term, pass away, um, katageo, which he comes to again in chapter 15. And the contrast here is Paul is pointing to the, the spiritual gifts of the Corinthians and the things that they're abusing. And he's saying, and, and the things that the Corinthians are pointing to as the evidence of what they will become in eternity, these pure sort of spiritual beings. And he's saying, well, actually, the very things that you're pointing at, they're the things that are going to pass away. There's nothing eternal about those gifts. And they don't point to what you will become. They're for now. And they only work imperfectly. That's, of course, where he's going with this passage. But, of course, what the Corinthians have said is, our bodies will pass away. And Paul, using this expression here, pass away, it, it becomes a key expression later on and a key concept in chapter 15 where he does talk about the resurrection. And he affirms the resurrection and the significance of the body and the fact that the bodies that we have in some fashion, are going to be the ones that God restores. And they don't pass away. And here, Paul begins to point at something else. And this is where maybe the, the strength of the quality of the love that he's talking about really begins to come into its own. In, um, in his novel, uh, Monsignor Quixote, by Graham Greene, they're two key characters in the novel. And at the end of the novel, one of them has passed away, and the other one is reflecting on his friendship with this character. Now, the, the surviving character is, he's a communist. And he's the communist mayor of a Spanish city. And all of his life as a communist, he's fought against what he believes is injustice. He's been very activist. 
and he's a true revolutionary and a devoted atheist as a good communist, right? But at the end of the novel, his friend has passed away. His friend who was actually a, Catholic, a very eccentric Catholic priest, hence the reference to Quixote, right? So at any rate, he's reflecting on his friendship with his friend who's passed away. And the narrator sort of explores his thinking and, he's, and he tells us this. This character, as he's reflecting on his life and his experience, he says, what happens? What happens to all of the anger and the hate? The hatred for those who persecuted him, who, who, um, who persecuted him, who abused his family, and who fought against him at every turn. What happens to that hatred? And he says, it's like water on the sand. It just dissipates gradually over time, fades away. But he goes further. He says, but what about love? And what about that particular love, the love he has for his friend? That love, even though his friend has passed, it continues to grow and strengthen. And he reflects on how even though his friend is gone, his love for his friend is just as strong as ever. In fact, if anything, growing. And he's troubled by this thought because it begins to point him in directions where he says, as if that love had a source in something eternal. And of course it does, doesn't it? That's the whole point. And it's a beautiful reflection from the novelist standpoint on the eternal quality of love, how our experience of love points us toward eternity in ways that our experience of the negative things that we like, hate, don't, and reveal the contingent, the temporal passing quality of the world that we live in. And that's what Paul is getting at here with this passage. When he's pointing the Corinthians to the fact, look, you guys have got it wrong. Your experience of these incredible spiritual gifts, and, and now just as an aside, um, if it's not too distracting, let's consider this. At no point does Paul ever say to the Corinthians, those spiritual gifts that you are experiencing, that you're manifesting, that you're exercising, are not real spiritual gifts. He doesn't say that. In fact, he endorses the reality of those gifts and their presence among these people. But he's saying, you've completely missed the point. You have been given this incredible wealth and you're, you're, you're not just squandering it, you're abusing it so that people in your own church get left behind. And worse than that, people who might be a part of your church aren't invited in. And Paul has this, this beautiful picture in chapter 14 of a visitor coming to this church and seeing all the wonderful things that are going on in this church and falling to his knees, so convicted of his own sin and the wonder of what he sees and, and praying to God for forgiveness as an example of what they should be experiencing. And he says, Paul says to them, look, you've so misunderstood the nature of these spiritual gifts. You think that this is your key into eternity. Those are all going to pass. But the thing that God has given you to treasure and to nourish and to care for and become a temple 
literally a, a sacred resting place of the Holy Spirit. You're abusing in shocking ways. And he says, that is not the key to eternity that God has given you. But he has given you a key to eternity and an experience of eternity that you can have even here, even now, and should have in your church, and that is love. And of course, that's what this passage so, so eloquently is about. We, now, we, we tend to focus on the fact this is one of the most quoted passages of the English language, of English literature, anywhere, historically, ever. And we, we, you know, we, we sort of, we come to it very quickly. We, we, we haul it out at weddings and things like that and kind of take it out of context and quote it just as it is. And rightly so, because it is a beautiful, and I think in the King James Version, a, a wonderfully poetic um, tribute to a very particular kind of love. Uh, powerful and beautiful. Um, all of the things that we, we give it credit for being. But that's not how, that's not why it was written in the first instance. In the first instance, it was written as a powerful critique of the opposite of the picture of love that it creates among the Corinthian believers. And Paul, of course, is talking about a very particular kind of love. He's talking about agape love. And you may know that that's a Greek word that's not used very widely anywhere else outside of the New Testament, agape. This love that Paul talks about here is a unique expression of selfless, self-sacrificing, godly love that has its roots in the character of God himself that is seen and demonstrated most powerfully in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. That is, that is agape love, as opposed to the other kinds of maybe more human love that are also mentioned in the, in the New Testament. And it's the same word. It's the word when, um, when Jesus says to his followers, in John chapter 13, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, if you have agape, love for one another. Agape, um, echo en alelon. Sorry, my Greek isn't all that good, so I shouldn't be trying to show off like this. I, I have to use all of the helps and everything that, that uh, Bible scholars need to have to do that. But the point is, um, not, not my the poor quality of my Greek. The point is the word is the same word, agape. The word that Jesus highlights for his disciples, for his followers, to say, to challenge them to consider that, what is it, how is it that people will know that you are my followers? You are the ones who are close to me. You are the ones that I have set apart for a very special purpose. And the thing that he highlights isn't their preaching ability or their spiritual insights or their a charismatic character or leadership qualities, it is that they will have this special, selfless, self-sacrificing love. The love that drove Jesus to the cross for them, they will have that love for one another. And that's what Paul is talking about here. You Corinthians, this is the work of the Spirit that God has, has done among you in the first instance to bring you to faith, to lead you into salvation, to give you this incredible, incredible gift 
of the hope of eternal life with him together. And you've messed it up. You've squandered it. And maybe Paul's concern is beyond the criticism of the spiritual ones and how badly they're misleading the church and how badly they're abusing their gifts and how badly they're treating other people. Maybe beyond his concern for them, he's more concerned with those who were left behind, like those hungry people at the end of the Lord's Supper who were left with nothing after these other more prominent people have gorged themselves and drunken themselves into a stupor. The ones who were left behind. And then, even more deeply, the ones who should be a part of the church but aren't because they don't see a testimony of the very thing that should draw them in and challenge them. And I want to tell you a story. Um, you wouldn't have a, a missionary speaker, a missionary background speaker, if he didn't tell you a story from the mission field, right? That's, that's just, that's part, a deep part of our training. Um, hopefully it's a relevant story. I think it's a relevant story. But this story, um, this took place while I was working in Ethiopia. And, and so that's that time that I mentioned before, I was actually working at that time as, a, as an advisor to the national church that we related to um, as a mission. And I had an office in that church. And one of the things that commonly happened is uh, evangelists and pastors and Bible college teachers and others who were involved in the church, who worked for the church right around Ethiopia, would come to the office, and many times they'd just kind of come in and check in with me and tell me stories about what was going on in their ministry. And I think they appreciated the fact that there was this foreigner, this, you know, very obvious um, non-Ethiopian who was really, really interested, genuinely interested in what, was, what they were doing and what God was doing in their lives through their ministry. And one of my favorites was this pastor. He was a, he was a little guy. He was kind of short in stature. But he was really fiery, had a lot of character, and his name was Warabo. And Warabo needed to have character because he was a pastor of a church in a town called Moyali. And Moyali is right on the, it sits right on the border, the south, the north-south border between Kenya and Ethiopia. Literally, right on the border. You cross the city in, in one half of the city, you're in town, you're in Ethiopia, and the other half you're in Kenya right on that border. But more, perhaps significantly, it's on the east-west border of the Oromo and Somali people, ethnically. And the Oromo and the Somali people, particularly of that part of East Africa, they vie with each other, they compete with each other to be more fanatical in their Islamic commitments and adherence. Very, very hard-nosed Muslims, particularly in that region. And being a pastor in a, a Christian, pastor of a Christian church in a place like that, and it was a small church in an overwhelmingly Muslim community, even just to go in public carrying a Bible with you was a death-defying act in that town. It's a dangerous place to be a Christian and a very challenging place to have a church, let alone to be the pastor of a church. But Warabo was very much up to the challenge, and he was a great, he's a wonderful character. And he used to come periodically, every three or four months to my office, and he would tell me stories about the incredible things that he saw God doing in that community. And sometimes the, 
I, you know, I couldn't help feeling the somewhat uh, provocative things that he, as the pastor of the Christian church, was willing to do in the Muslim community. Um, definitely things I wouldn't have tried doing, but at any rate, he knew what he was doing. Uh, and the, one of the great stories he told me was, this went on for several months, really kind of over the course of the year. You may know, in a town like this, there will be a mosque, probably several mosques, and the mosque will have a tall minaret, and at the top of that minaret, there will be a loudspeaker. And five times a day, the, the muezzin, the prayer caller, will send a message through that loudspeaker to the Muslims of the region to call them to prayer. And it could be any time, you know, because it's, it's the, before the, the sun up, there's one very late at night, and then through the course of the day. And, and they're loud. If you've ever been in one of these towns, you know that loud, it can be quite annoying, um, especially at five o'clock in the morning when you're trying to sleep. And this, oh, comes across the, this loudspeaker into your bedroom. At any rate, they had a loudspeaker. So the Christians said, well, if the Muslims can have a loudspeaker, we should have a loudspeaker. <laughs> and they did. They went out and they got a sound system and they decided every Sunday and in the midweek, they would broadcast all of the sermons from that church to the whole community. Um, and boldly, um, maybe somewhat unwisely, but certainly boldly, they did. And then they noticed that the central mosque, the Friday mosque, the big mosque there, um, they got an even louder sound system to project their prayer calls to the community. And it was really obvious what was going on here. So the Christian says, well, we're not going to be beaten by these Muslims. We'll amp up the watts on our sound system. We'll get louder speakers, and we'll make sure that the people in Nairobi, in Kenya, can hear us preaching when we preach. So they got a louder sound system. And things went back and forth like this kind of one-upsmanship for, for months. And then Warabo came one week. And I was expecting to hear him say, uh, they were, you know, they were up to the kind of maximum wattage now. They're about to blow out the electrical grid in the city of uh, Moyali. But um, I asked him how it was going, and he said, ah, oh, he said, he was a bit subdued and a little more thoughtful than usual. But he said, ah, oh, he said, Steve, God has just done a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's amazing. And, and let me tell you what happened. So this is, this is in the heart of the rainy season in Ethiopia. And one of the things that happens during the rainy season, the beginning and the end of the rainy season, there are these incredible electrical storms where the weather sweeps through and the thunder and the lightning come and they're really dramatic. And he said, at the beginning of the rainy season, as one of these electrical storms swept through Moyali, guess what's the tallest point in the city of Moyali? It was the loudspeaker on the top of the minaret of that Friday mosque. Lightning struck the minaret and destroyed the sound system for the mosque. And Warabo said, of course, we were all rejoicing and we were all, you know, praising God. And when we got together that Sunday, we were all really excited and we were all carrying on. And one of the members of the congregation stood up and said, God has judged these so forth and so on. I won't tell you exactly what he called them, but anyway, he's judged them and, and, um, and he's stricken them down and we're going to overcome these Muslims. And Warabo said, up to that point, 
up to that point, that's exactly how I felt. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause the story for just a moment because at this point in the story, I have to say, as I was listening to this, when he told me about the lightning striking the minaret, I confess at that point in the story, I felt a little smug satisfaction in my own heart. Now, this is destruction, mind you. So, you know, is that really a good Christian uh, response? Nevertheless, very sort of smug satisfaction. And for most of us hearing this story, it would be natural at that point of the story to kind of pat God on the back and say, yep, thanks, exactly, that's exactly right. That's exactly what needed to happen. But that's not the end of the story. And in fact, it's really not the point of the story. Warabo said, up to that point, I felt exactly the same way. I was exulting in what had happened and praising God with everybody else. And um, what I realized was I was stricken in my heart at that moment because I realized I was praying for God to judge these people and not to save these people. And I stopped the service at that point and I said to the, to the brothers and sisters there, I said, look, we, we all have cause for rejoicing and for thanksgiving. But what does that say about what's in our hearts? These people are perishing. And we should be more concerned about their salvation than about getting them into a place where we can overcome them or God striking them down or, or something terrible happening to them. These are our brothers and sisters too. And we should be moved by the same compassion that God has for them, that not even one should perish. And he said in that moment, we were all deeply, deeply convicted. And they had a church meeting after that service. And this is what they did. They dismantled their sound system and the loudspeakers. And they marched them over to the mosque. And they gave them as a gift to the Muslims at the mosque who were totally stunned by what they had done. And later that week, the chief imam, teacher of the mosque, he invited Warabo to his home for a meal. Absolutely unheard of. But he did. He reached out, he invited him, and he had a conversation with Warabo. And he said, you know we're deeply grateful for what you have done. And we don't know how to thank you. We don't know how to respond. Um, and we, we never would have expected anything like this. But we have seen among your people that you really love each other and care for each other in ways that we don't know how to. He said, have you ever tried to be the imam, the spiritual leader of a, a, of, of a Somali congregation? And I betray my Ethiopian prejudices here, but um, if you know anything about Somalis from that perspective, they have a very bad reputation for being contentious. And at any rate, he said, we don't even agree with each other whether it's Monday or Tuesday. And we fight about absolutely everything else. But we look at you. And he used the term believers, not the term they usually use for Christians. We look at you believers, and we see real love. And we envy you. We wish we had that love. And now, you have extended that love to us. And we, we're at a loss for words. We don't know how to respond, except all we can do is thank you. And 
praise God for you. Interesting that he would put it that way, isn't it? And Warabo told me that. He finished the story with that. And he said, from that point on, we stopped thinking of the Muslims as the competition and started thinking of them as our brothers, our unreached brothers and sisters. That is exactly the picture of love that Paul has given us here in chapter 13. Selfless, self-sacrificing, the love that drove Christ to the cross. And he's saying to the Corinthian believers, you've missed the point completely because the people in your own church who should benefit from that love are left out. You have cut them off. And that is, that is the evidence that says the environment that you have been called to create of love for your own people uh, and, the, and the things that you have, the gifts that you have been given to do that with, you have totally corrupted and misused. And Paul says, I can't call you spiritual ones. I have to call you natural people. Um, it's the total opposite, in other words. But the point that he's making to them isn't just what they've missed out on for themselves, but he holds them to account. And this is the thing that should speak to us. If a visitor came to your church, what would they find? This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. What would they find? And would they be so moved by what they found and the evidence of the work of the Spirit, the real work of the Spirit among you, that they would be convicted of their sins and they would fall down and they would ask for forgiveness and they would cry out for salvation? And the question for us is exactly the same question. If a visitor stumbled into this church, would they be so moved by the love that they find here that they would be convicted, that they would be like those Muslims in Moyali who said, we don't even know how that's possible, but we see it. It's real. These people know love, and they know it in a way that isn't human. Would they see it? So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to end with a couple of questions. Well, I'll end with a prayer for all of us because I think that's important. But let me, let me finish with a couple of questions. What is the Spirit doing among you as a congregation? And remember, most of the, most of the you that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians is not you singular. He's not talking to any one individual Corinthian. He is almost always talking to you all. And in American, we can do that. Y'all, right? We've got the collective plural second person. It's a little harder. I know some people say yous in, uh, in Australian. I don't know if it works quite as well. But nevertheless, it's you all. That's who Paul is speaking to in his letter to the Corinthians. He's speaking to you all. And so the question for us as believers and the question to you as a congregation is, what are the things that you have put in place? What are the practices, the activities that you have put in place to put you as a congregation into proximity with people who you wouldn't normally associate with or reach out to or think of in terms of fellowship? 
What are the things that you're doing to place you close to those people? That's one question. And the other question, and maybe this is a little more personal. What are you asking God to? What are you inviting God to do? In what ways are you inviting God to challenge your expectations about what you look for from this church for the sake of what you have to give to this church? Is that clear? How are you inviting God to challenge your expectations about what you look for from this church for the sake of what you have to give to this church? That's the picture of love that this chapter is all about. And let me end with a prayer for you, for us, really. Let's pray. Father, we, we do find this passage on love um, positively such a beautiful passage. It is. It says so many deep and wonderful things. And perhaps the fact that it points us to the fact that this love, a love that we're invited to participate in, to enjoy and to share, has its roots in you. And so in so many ways for us, this is our opportunity to experience eternity in our lives here and now. And we thank you for what, everything that Christ has done to, to free up that love for us. And, and even and mysteriously to free up that love in us. And what we know, Father, is that we let it down so often in so many ways. And in doing that, we effectively deny that Jesus is who he is for us. And I don't believe we mean to. Father, for all of us here, I really believe we want Jesus to be prominently and, and convincingly and absolutely for each one of us who he's given himself to be. We want that love that you have given us access to, that you've actually stirred up in us, to be a love that we can enjoy deeply, profoundly, mysteriously, and overflowingly as it fills our hearts and our lives and overflows into the lives of people who need to experience it. And you can only vaguely imagine what it must be like or where it even comes from. And for the sake of those people, Father, who need to know this love and what it points to, we pray for this church and for each of us as, as believers that that would be the characteristic that people find when they interact with us. It would be the thing that they walk away from wondering about and thinking about and dwelling on. Not for our sake. We don't need the credit for that. And we don't deserve the credit for that. But for the sake of your name, for the sake of your honor and your glory, and for the sake of everything that you have committed deeply in your heart to, and the salvation that you offer, we pray that this may be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.